fundraising is a full-time job. It's not only emotional, but it's physical. You are going from one meeting to the next and you're pitching, 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 and you're doing this for X weeks straight. That requires a lot of focus. And I'm not saying that you can't do it while you are pregnant, but because I wasn't pregnant, I had continued to delay my second pregnancy or my trying to conceive until I felt more comfortable with my fundraising cycle, like what it would look like. And I would sit there and note to myself, okay, if I start here, or if we can see here, where would we be in the fundraising cycle between our two companies? I know that that's not very romantic of me to say, but it's the truth. Hi, everyone. This is Margie Chuang, and welcome to Moms Who Build, a podcast about moms who build things that bring them joy. I learn about what inspires moms to start their own journeys, what keeps them motivated, and what it's really like to build things while being a parent. This episode features Mimi Chan. Mimi is the founder and CEO of Little Fund, a financial gifting app for modern families to save with family and friends for their child's journey. In continuing her passion for early childhood education and quality of life improvement, Mimi started Little Fund as a second-time tech entrepreneur. She realized after becoming a new mother that parents were overwhelmed with the rising cost of raising children, but lacked a simple way to save for those milestones, especially when family and friends were part of a generation that was okay with giving cash gifts instead of material gifts. Ultimately, Mimi saw this as a start to tackling a fundamental problem with tremendous future implications. Little Fund's mission is to help everyone invest in a child's future, one gift at a time, to prepare and build sustainable futures using technology to reimagine savings and gifting on the path to financial wellness. Prior to Little Fund, Mimi led Pencils of Promise as a founding COO, a 501c3 nonprofit providing global primary education. Today, Pencils of Promise has built over 500 schools that serve over 100,000 students. Currently, Mimi resides with her family in Oakland, California. Depending on where you are in the world, you may want to grab a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and settle in, because Mimi and I open up the doors of vulnerability and get really honest today. Mimi also reveals some exciting news about Little Fund, so stick around to hear the announcement. Without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Mimi Chan. Hi, Mimi. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Great. So nice to be here with you now on Zoom, <laughs> as everyone <laughs> is on Zoom nowadays. Yep. This is basically our lives these days. So I want to start off by asking you about your entrepreneurial journey. You are a serial entrepreneur. Can you walk us through your journey and tell us about the companies you founded and what made you decide to start building them when you did? Again, thanks for having me here. I'm really excited to be here and to share my story. Hopefully it will resonate with some people or get people inspired to do something. Let's see, prior to Little Fun, I have done a mix of things. I started off in finance. I went into nonprofit, then eventually into tech. I graduated from college with a finance degree from the University of Houston. Then after that, I moved to NYC to begin my professional career in finance. And to be honest, I dreaded that moment which was post-college, thinking about what I was going to do and how I was going to use my finance degree. I wasn't passionate about the financial industry in terms of like, I never saw myself being on Wall Street or being in the banking industry. And I never had thought prior to that really what 
I was extremely passionate about. Not that I didn't like finance. It was just the way I was going to apply myself in finance. I found myself first at the Bank of New York, and then I ended up in real estate development, which was exciting and new in the finance department. Eventually that moved me into real estate financing with a private equity firm. I went from big to small in terms of firm size each time. In 2008, the financial collapse happened and things changed for me. Although it was a scary time, I found myself busy with a passion project called Pencils of Promise. It turned into what many people know today as Pencils Promise, the nonprofit that provides access to education through our over 500 and counting preschool and primary schools across the world, particularly in developing areas. And after Pencils of Promise took off, I was able to take a step away. This allowed me to pursue more entrepreneurial endeavors and particularly in tech. I remember how blogs turned into Tumblr and then there was Facebook, but it was no longer for colleges anymore. And there's this new thing called Twitter. It was like the way you would talk to nobody, but everybody. And that became a thing. I was excited and inspired. That led me to my first tech app. It was called Thread. It was sharing your style and tag it with all the brand names or the style influences. And it's what Instagram is today, (laughs) but not, it wasn't Instagram. I missed that vote. It was a great learning experience. I learned so much there from how to build a tech team, how to build a tech product, how to launch a tech product. I also learned a little bit about pivoting. We were strictly an app at first, and as things started taking shape, we uh, got feedback from the community, and we knew we had to make changes. We had to do them fast, and we ended up pivoting towards a social commerce site. At the time, things like Fab were really popular, where you could do daily deals. We offered the real-time photo sharing, but what we did was we used the data on that to inspire what we would launch in products, so you could see kind of side-by-side what people People were wearing or what was inspiring them on the streets. And then here you could shop something similar. We actually ended up getting a small, but an exit there. From that too, I learned a lot. And I'd have to say no exit story is the same, but I, I was ready to take a break. And I did. In between all of that time from Thread to Little Fun, I had gotten married and I became a mother. The birth of Liv my first daughter was what planted the seeds a little fun. You had your first daughter live, like you mentioned. So tell me a little bit more about at what point did you make the jump to I'm going to start little fun? It's a funny story, but it's about how randomness is special and meaningful, but you probably won't realize it until a lot later. While I was at Pencils of Promise, I was in charge of fundraising for the first few years. And along the way, I was introduced to Jack Dorsey. He was, you know, this guy that was sharing his new project. We were connected through mutual friends. I had reached out to him and I told him, hey, I'm looking for something that's going to allow me to take a donation immediately at these fundraising events that I was producing. And I said, it's all about instantaneous. Like, I don't want them to go home, 
and send us a check. I wanted the point of sale to be immediate. I had tried to go to the bank to get some of those credit card reading machines. Didn't really have much success. And here comes Square Up, and I thought it was brilliant. I was inspired. And aside from you know what I did with it at Pencils of Promise, and we were like one of the first nonprofits to use it, I knew at that moment that the future of payments and banking was going to be instant and online. And my experience using Square stayed with me the entire time from the moment that I had it until the idea of Little Fun. Right before I gave birth to Liv, I remember just talking to my husband about the gifts that we were going to receive or family and friends that were asking us what to give. And my husband and I also being aware that we were living in a condo that wasn't going to allow for a lot of stuff. And managing that was a bit of a challenge if we were to get too much stuff. So I was like, what's the alternative? That's where Little Fun came in. It was an idea that fun out of the time people were moving to cash registries. We did it with our honeymoon. We used Honey Fun. People had become very familiar with online payments. They also were beginning to make it friendlier. So then that meant people were comfortable with it. There was Venmo. And I said, well, Little Fund is a way to help everyone invest in what matters most for your little one, whether it was college, which was something that was also looming in our minds, because as a new parent, you're trying to think about all these things that you need to do for your child and you want to prepare. And they're telling you that the financial path is something that you need to think about. And so with all of that spinning around in my mind, Little Fun kind of just made sense. And it was this really simple way to answer a lot of these concerns that I had early on as a parent. I saw that parents were constantly overwhelmed with learning how to care for their children, to juggle work and home life, manage finances, and thinking about the future. They're living in smaller places that are living further apart from their loved ones. And quite frankly, we became a generation that didn't want more stuff. We wanted experiences. And this simple little thing that I could build where it's like give gift funds towards a goal for the child, whatever that goal is, could help inspire them for the future. It was that combination of a cash registry and a bank, and it would grow with your child. And this became the meaningful way to gift for children. It's something that I think resonates with a lot of parents. And we all just want to focus on building that brighter future for our next generation. Yeah, it certainly resonates with me. When you get material gifts, they depreciate as soon as you open them. And we have a lot of secondhand toys, but it ended up just being a lot of things around the house that we also felt guilty about because someone had taken the time to sort through it, right? Mm -hmm. Or buy it. But the thing was each child, as we all know, are, are so different. And they may not be interested in some of the toys. As time goes on, like you mentioned, in our generation, we are thinking more about giving our children the experiences or investing in their college fund or at least building out something for them to be able to be money conscious of and to learn at an early age what it means to save and invest money. So I'm a parent and I want to set up a little fund for my sons. Can you walk me through that process? 
Yeah. So as I mentioned before, Little Fun is a financial gifting platform. Essentially, we're a neo bank, which means we're a layer on top of an existing bank who's our partner. But Little Fund is in charge of the entire experience. So the bank holds the funds and provide us FDIC insurance on those funds. How it works is whether you're a parent or someone wanting to give a gift to a child, which is the gift of funds, Little Fund helps you do that easily. Gifts are received into a Little Fund. That's again, FDIC insured. Parents can set that up with a family account when they sign up. They add and manage a Little Fund for each child in the family. Parents or admins can carry on the account. They can add funds, customize goals, give gifts to other children as well in the Little Fund ecosystem, they can withdraw funds when needed, which is important. We wanted to provide flexibility to families. And when we say, you know, it's whatever matters most that you're saving up for, we mean it. It could be short-term savings or long-term savings. It could be child's care help. It could be swimming lessons, or it could be what many of our users do use it for, college. And this compounds over time, right, Mimi? Yes. We on the platform provide rewards and the rewards are treated like interest that you could get in your little fund account. It compounds daily. And it's a great way as your child grows, they can actually see how their little fund is growing. It opens up that conversation. What is interest and how does it work? And it builds excitement for the child to be able to follow along their financial journey. You can also be a gifter. And what that means is you are just going to give the monetary gift into a child's little fund, but you have no access to it and you're not in charge of managing it. Gifters can gift into an existing little fund That means they received a Little Fund link or they found them on Little Fund. They can also gift to a new Little Fund. That's like a gift card. Yeah, I wish I had Little Fund growing up, to be honest. (laughs) Back then when we got a savings bond, right? Like we could actually Mm -hmm. kind of see what happened to it. And that's Mm -hmm. what we wanted to do with Little Fund is provide a window eventually for children to see what their journey has been like from birth and onwards. Yeah. And I think how you can make, like you said, it more fun to see what it means to grow an investment and to make it a family affair, right? And Mm -hmm. a conversation around the dinner table and kids are very... Yeah, they're very curious. Yeah, My five-year-old daughter, Liv, is very much getting involved with money, even if it's playing with a cash register, she has a awareness that money exists and that there is some or none Mm -hmm. and how it works that there is an exchange for it. It's important for our generation who is a digital generation to have something that speaks more to them than the antiquated piggy bank. So that's what we wanted Little Fun to be was let's modernize the piggy bank, but let's do it in a way that's going to be useful for long term, meaning like you're going to get it at birth, but it'll grow with you. What is really special about Little Fun and what we wanted was that it provide that conversation to the child on what is money. And it also creates moments where you can start practicing saving 
with the child as soon as they know and what easier way to do it than to pick an occasion like a birthday to be able to talk about saving for something special. That's where we think that our unique approach to finance is celebrated by our community is how we're thinking about it from all angles from the practicality of it to the long-term development that we're pushing for our children. Yeah. And I love your term for it, right? It's an experience, which is the way our world is now moving. It's no longer something where like a material gift, it's a instantaneous sort of gratification, Mm -hmm. which isn't healthy for even us as adults. And it teaches our children that the long-term reward could be much bigger than just to play with a toy for five minutes and then not revisit it, right? You're not going to get that return. Yeah. When we give our child goals and on Little Fund, if they can see their goals or you talk about their goals, then it empowers them to work towards it. It excites them. It motivates them. And then it's beautiful when they accomplish it. And there's nothing more exciting to a child and nothing that will build their confidence more than just knowing that they can do something and that they've accomplished something. That's why I think it's important to have these lessons and our team has worked really hard to seamlessly integrate those lessons without putting the pressure on the parent. We wanted to make it more experiential as lessons being learned through the use of Little Fund. It's a much more natural way to learn, in my opinion. Did your upbringing play a role in how you approach making business decisions and building companies, and in particular, Little Fund? Of course. So I was raised by Vietnamese migrants that had fled the Vietnam War on boats brought to a refugee camp in the Philippines where I was born. We were lucky to get sponsorship to the United States. That's where we eventually settled. And we were then naturalized as citizens. My upbringing had a lot to do with, you know, how I think about money. My parents stressed the importance of savings and mindful spending. We didn't have very much when we came to America. There was a time when after coming to America, we were living with my aunt. We eventually then moved out into our own little apartment. That was a huge step. But prior to that, my parents did need assistance. So we had food stamps. But through saving, my parents were able to then get enough money to move out into that apartment and eventually become financially independent. Once I was in charge of my own finances, I realized how important those early lessons were in frugality and spending. They were lessons that made me who I am today. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love nice things. (laughs) I will still buy things that I think are meaningful for me. I do splurge sometimes and I do get a bit excited on Amazon sometimes. So I wouldn't call myself cheap or frugal, but I have frugal ways to balance my spending. I'm very conscious and aware. I think that that is because I've lived the way I lived growing up with my parents. It's that paranoia that you may not have any more money 
that played a big part in my life. I think twice on big purchases. I find ways to minimize unnecessary spending. I'm a product of that Asian mom that tears paper towels in half. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. always finding ways to make my dollar stretch. And that savings lesson, that lesson carried on into me realizing that my post-college experience was the consequence of my parents spending the time and the energy to save for college. I got to finish college debt-free. I didn't have to worry about loans. So I was very, very fortunate in that way. Even though my parents did not have a lot of money growing up, they were just disciplined and consistent. And that's what financial wellness is, is having the ability to maintain discipline and consistency with your saving habits. Now, fast forward, I'm running a company that is centered around savings. Thank you for sharing all that. My parents immigrated from Vietnam as well. And I remember there was a Christmas where my mom got me this Sylvester pillow from the Warner Brothers. I don't remember what the show was. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right? And it was just his face and it was a pillow. And for whatever reason, I really, really wanted that pillow. And I remember opening it on Christmas Day. And then the next day, my mom ended up returning the pillow. And at the time, as a little kid, you know, I was devastated. But I also was aware being a child with parents who did not speak English when they first came to the U.S., who went to night school while also working several jobs that although I was sad, at least they wanted to make me happy on that day, which they did, but that it was a lesson in that we just can't afford this thing right now. We would rather buy you a backpack for school, which you'll use throughout the year. And when you mentioned tearing the napkins in half, I, to this day, any napkins in our house that are a little bit soiled, but not like wet or anything, right? I actually reuse them to, you know, mop up the millions of spills that (laughs) happen in our house on a daily basis. And it's just something that it's just a part of you, you know, and you can I moved on to unpaper towels. Like, <laughs> yeah. The funny thing too, I will like reuse the cloth ones if they're not very dirty. Yeah. I have like a pile just for the napkins that are gently used. Exactly. Because I think, oh, we just keep spending money on washing these. Mm-hmm. That's a waste. We have to be more mindful about the energy consumption that yeah. goes into washing towels. So I think that, yeah, I, I get you. And wow, that that's a pretty powerful story and memory of your upbringing and that one special Christmas. Yeah, I'm sure it was not easy at all for my mom to have returned that pillow. And I'm really appreciative of how much that they sacrificed uh, for me to also graduate debt-free from college. Wow. So thank you for sharing How that. did you... Curious, mm-hmm. how did you react at the time the next day when you realized that the pillow is not there? Did she tell you what she was doing or did it just disappear? It disappeared. And then I asked my mom after I spent the day looking for it. I can't remember how old I was at the time. We were at our apartment. So anywhere between ages four and six. And I remember my mom telling me, I, 
I had to return it. We don't have the money for you to be able to keep something like this. I, of course, cried and stayed in my room for the better part of a day. But again, I just remembered that my parents weren't home very often at night because they were going to school and working. I had to understand that. And I'm, as a general matter, an empath. And so I think that that helped me cope with that mm-hmm. that yeah. situation. Yeah. Wow. Even with my children, I try to find ways that I can create those limits for them. We live very differently than my parents did when raising my sister and I, but there are lessons there that I try to repeat to my daughter. And there are many times that I don't give her things or make it so easy for her or tempt her. I mm-hmm. We don't do trips to the toy store. It's not that I'm anti-toys or anything like that. It's just that I understand the temptation that I'm putting them in. And I don't want that for her because it is just as difficult for the parent to have to say no than it is for the child to hear the no. That's important to me when I think about how I'm going to raise Live and Ivy. And so I'm glad that I also sometimes can say, let's check your little fund, or I'll always ask, do you have money? (laughs) (laughs) I've been doing it since she was four. And it makes her think about money. It makes her think twice about the ask. And it makes her think creatively in how to get something if it does require money. And then she ends up asking questions. And then I also found this little hack where we take a picture of that item and mommy and daddy will try to figure out, you know, if we have the money for it. But right now, you know, the money is for food or this or that. Mm -hmm. And she says, okay, And I said, is that a deal? We'll think about it, okay? And then eventually she either forgets about it or she's just as happy having the photo. And maybe that's because we're raising our kids in a digital age that sort of works for us right now. So we have two quote-unquote rules when it comes to purchases in our house. I'm not particularly frugal either, especially during the quarantine. We've had to get a few more things. And same as you, we rarely make a trip to Target with the kids to the toy (laughs) section, right? But what we do say is that, yes, you can get a toy today if it's the day that they could get one. But it has to be something where you are building something. So... Legos, right? And then the other thing that we tell them that we have an unlimited budget for, unlimited to an extent, is in their head. In their head, yeah, (laughs) is for books. So building and books are two of the things where it's like, if you want to splurge, we can talk about it. But these are primarily the two things that we want you to be investing your time and money into because in the future, this will benefit you reading and building things. I love that. That is the same approach too. When it does come to buying something, books are at the top of our priority list for them. And she knows that. And then the other thing is similar to you building, but I call it kind of like supplies or activities, anything that's going to help develop their skills or their creativity or their imagination. I'm all for it, which for Liv, she really enjoys make-believe. And without being excessive, I've gotten her a couple of costumes and then we've received hand-me-downs of costumes. And so 
know, purchasing a costume to me is part of the building of that imagination. The imagination and doing independent play is really important. And it's quite interesting to watch them and listen, make believe because you're seeing that creation. Sometimes it's really funny and super creative. It's in those moments that I at least feel like, oh, we're doing a fantastic job. Oh, yeah. (laughs) As I sip my wine and watch them play, I give myself a lot of praise. Moving back to building things as entrepreneurs, I read in an article that in between the time you had the idea for Little Fund and launching Little Fund, you said, so as you can imagine, there was a long time in between filled with insecurity, self-doubt, paranoia, and just pure hard work. This spoke to me so much because when you're building something from ideation to launch, when you're an entrepreneur, there are so many late nights And a lot of times that you're alone working on your service or your product. And so for me, there were and are many times where I feel like, is what I'm doing improving the lives of others? Am I filling an actual need? Am I smart enough? Am I, quote unquote, the right person? I could go on, right? If you're comfortable sharing, what made you feel insecure and what made you doubt yourself for their specific things that made you feel this way? Where do I start? (laughs) (laughs) In between the time I started Little Fund and launching Little Fund, I had to constantly convince myself to go all in because I knew how much work it would be and what I had to sacrifice for our family, from money to most importantly, time. This was me being a first-time mom. I was never going to get these moments back. I asked myself constantly, is this worth it? And that's where I had to remind myself about our mission. And I think that when you ever come into doubt, always go back to why. Why are you building this? What's your mission? The funny thing is that it wasn't back then and it isn't now. My kids that are keeping me up at night. It's a little fun. So during that time when I first was starting off, I kept thinking about the idea And I also knew I could do it. The self-doubt was if I could do it while raising a family and if the idea was good enough for me to raise any money from it. I mean, fintech is costly. Investment is necessary. And those questions, quite honestly, don't change even as your company grows, even as you take in every new round. The ups and downs will make you question everything. Things happen at a rapid pace. You are sometimes feeling like you're just hanging on. It's an emotional roller coaster. Running a startup is a marathon. It's that hard work that you have to do on your own when you don't have a team yet. It's the self-motivation that you have to have to get started and then to keep doing it every morning and to do it when it feels the hardest to do. It's when you hit those challenges, those moments when you hear no's too many times in a row. Mm -hmm. It's doing all of the things that you have to do to build a company while maintaining your home life and maintaining a marriage, if you're in one or a relationship with a significant other, 
it's juggling all of those things that create insecurities and self-doubt. Does the insecurity and self-doubt take over? No, it can't. When it starts to creep up, I breathe and I say, this is normal. This is part of the process, but you're always given a choice. Do you continue to let that overcome you or do you decide to overcome it with forward thinking and perseverance? And when you're starting off in launching the company, like all that stuff you do, which is not what people see, it's building the team, building the product, understanding your demographic, understanding your user, design, brand, corporate filing, taxes, like all of those things. They're a lot to manage. And then you also have chicken and egg situations. Those are when you say, oh, I need this to get this. But in order to get this, I need that. Mm -hmm. And you're constantly going back and forth between the chicken and egg. And this will happen early on when you haven't raised a ton of money. That creates a lot of frustration. It creates the annoying start and stop moments. For myself in this journey, it's been a theme because raising as a woman founder statistically is more challenging. We end up raising less and we end up raising a lot later. And I know you mentioned that it's an ongoing thing. During those times where you are feeling the self-doubt or the paralysis, how long does it take you personally to get from that feeling to getting back up and remembering the mission and then moving forward? I have an answer to this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm ready. Because I've noticed in every situation, at most 24 hours, oh, I, I give myself the day mm-hmm. to cry it out, bitch it out, curl up in a ball, get mad, whatever it is to react. I give myself that day to react and only to react without any pressure to make a decision. And I find that after a day, let's say 24 hours, I wake up feeling refreshed and ready to go again. And I don't know what it is. I don't know why it's 24 hours or a day. I'm just telling you what I've noticed in the past. I find it therapeutic for me to just let it out, confide in someone. Most likely it's my husband. And he will usually give me some words of comfort or he gives me the reminders that I need. So that's another thing I suggest you find that someone that you could ugly cry to. They would be so kind in sort of nudging you back in the right direction and reminding you to not give up because you need that. Because these types of moments that I'm talking about, they happen so often. The disappointment, even if it's not what seems to be a big deal or it's not anything that's going to end the company, every disappointment hurts. And it hurts because you are working so hard and you want it so bad, you're tired. You are running on fume. I find that I need time to let it out and then time to process it a bit. And then motivate myself by saying that you are granted, Mimi, you're granted a new day tomorrow, a new day to do something. 
you're granted this choice and you have to do something or choose to quit. Along those lines, and let me know if I'm wrong about this fact, but I read that when it comes to fundraising, Jay-Z's song lyrics help you when it comes to thinking about (laughs) Can you share what those lyrics are and how they apply to your thoughts about fundraising? Yes. I first have to give credit to my husband. He was the one to give me this tip on what song he listens to when he fundraises. Interesting. Okay. He's also a startup entrepreneur. And the song is on to the next one, on to the next. Fundraising is daunting and it's a full-time job on its own. It's hard. It's straining. It's emotional. It's physical. It's back-to-back meetings and pitching till your throat is dry. And each time you've got to have the same conviction, energy, and enthusiasm as if it's your first pitch of the day. That's where the lyrics I got a million ways to get it. Choose one. Like you've got to go and knock on those doors and some you'll get into. You get in, you pitch your ass off, complete vulnerability to convince these investors you're going to make them rich. And that's the, hey, bring it back. Now double your money, make a stack. Those lyrics. Most of the time you'll leave with a no, but you got to keep going one at a time. You keep knocking because it's a numbers game. You can't let that affect you. You've got to shake it off. So I'm on to the next, on to the next. I'll have to look up that song now and then also link them <laughs> in, link to Jay-Z in the show notes. Little <laughs> It'll be your thing. intro. I'll see if I can get the licensing for, <laughs> for that. So you were talking about how to get people behind you, behind your product, behind your service as the founder with the idea, how do you get people to believe in you first, right? Because they are following you and then your idea and believing in both of those things enough that they are passionate to join your team and make that idea into a reality. You have to believe in it yourself first, like wholeheartedly. If you don't, then you got to go back to the drawing board and figure out what it is that's holding you back from going all in. You've got to go all in because actions speak louder than words. When you're on the search for a team, they've got to believe it. And all they have to look at is obviously your reputation or your resume, and then how prepared you are. It's a pitch to every single team member that you bring on early into your company or into your idea. That energy And that conviction has to be felt by them. That's what gets them excited to want to join on. These early team members risk a lot in the same way that you are. They're going through the same questions and the same doubts that you have. And so you've got to give them answers or comfort in how to overcome those doubts and to focus on the vision. It's the thread that runs through each team member. It's what keeps you together. I'm curious, Mimi, how do you go about finding that talent? Did you post on a job board? What were the first steps you took? I was talking to people. Take as many coffee meetings as you can. Ask questions. Ask people that you know One meeting will lead to another, will lead to another. And sometimes it leads you to your team members or your co-founder. 
for me, with my first tech company, it was actually, I'd have to say serendipity and both. With my first tech company, I met my technical co-founder through Meetup. I was attending different meetups and making friends, trying to learn more about the people there, the community, sharing what I was working on, not too much, but just what I was working on. I put my ask out there and eventually I met one person who introduced me to another person who then introduced me to my co-founder then. With Little Fund, it was actually pure serendipity. I decided to take a trip back home to Texas to visit my mom. On that trip, coming back from Houston, I ended up running into this person who asked me out on a coffee date. We struck up a conversation. We happened to also be at the same gate. She told me what she did. Immediately I thought, oh, here's my email. Why don't you email me and I can see if I could connect you to some people that may be helpful just to talk about what it is that you might be wanting to pursue when you're in the Bay Area, if you move out here. It was just, again, this idea of connecting people and to have meaningful coffee dates. I believe in it. I wanted to extend that offer to her. I got a text after I landed, and it was the woman that I had met at the airport. She asked me for coffee the next day and brought her boyfriend, and her boyfriend was Isaac. He is now my co-founder. He sat through that coffee meeting that wasn't meant for him. He heard about what I was working on. He was feeling like he was ready to transition out of IBM. And he also had an opportunity to do it. He reached out to me three weeks later and we found that it made sense. We got along really well. I never sugarcoated the journey of what building a startup would be like. And I also gave him the reality that most startups fail, but that I felt personally, this was a mission. This was a vision to try to pursue and a mission worth pursuing. He ended up feeling the same way. Again, going back to how do you find those people? Mm -hmm. And when you just have the idea, I had it pretty fleshed out. I thought it through. I try to plug my own holes. I did so much research. I went from someone who was only a user of Square to being this expert in fintech, like how it worked and what was the market like, what technology was being used and how we could build it. I did a lot of research and that was what I think gave him a lot of comfort and it also impressed him at the same time that for someone who wasn't technical, I really had a well thought out idea. What you just said is a really powerful message as women. To your point earlier, it takes us longer to be able to get where we need to go, but that it is absolutely something that we should be proud to say, I did this. I made those connections. I put in the thought and the effort and the time and that I am. I'm the hustler. 
I'm the, yeah, I'm the hustler. And when I started this podcast, I find myself think things like I'm not smart enough or I'm not qualified enough to be doing this, but I am qualified, right? After you've done the research, after you've educated yourself, after you've done the hard work, you should be able to say, I know how to do this. I am capable of doing this. And it's like, hey, I got this, Mm -hmm. but I'm also going to continue learning yeah, and continue the path along with you to better myself as an expert in this space. Right. And so I, with everything, I try to leave that door open that this isn't it. I'm going to keep learning and I'm going to keep driving myself to be better for the platform, for our investors, and ultimately for our users the people who have trusted us with the experience. I want to make sure that I'm going to keep living up to their expectation. What did you do to get your first users? Well, we did a lot of testing with just my group of friends, parents that I knew. And then we started opening it up to their friends if they could invite one more person or one more family, if they could invite so-and-so family. And also the way our product works is that every child's little fun comes with a link for people to gift. And when they gift into it, that introduces them to little fun. We also were getting users that way. Yeah. You're not asking potential users to take an extra step. It's baked into the little fun experience. Yeah. And to be honest, we did not spend a lot of money on doing PR or marketing outreach. It has really grown organically in a lot of ways. And that's something that I'm very proud of for our company that is run by a lean team. We didn't raise as much as all of the other fintech companies out there. If you're comfortable sharing, was there ever a time where a parenting challenge overlapped with building Little Fund? And can you speak to that time and what lessons you took away from it? When is there not a time that I'm faced with a parenting challenge around entrepreneurship? Once you become a parent, it doesn't ever end. A specific time, though, I was pregnant with my second Ivy. And I was worried that I may be showing if I fundraise. That ended up not happening. I delayed my fundraise, not because of my pregnancy. There was this relief in not having to fundraise while I was showing. And then after giving birth to her, it was holiday time, which is our busiest time of the year. And I was not able to take maternity leave. I also had to prepare for upcoming fundraising season. Since I had delayed it, it was looming near. There's a lot of prep that goes into it. And I knew that I needed to be on my A game. So maternity leave, complete maternity leave at least, was not an option for me. I ended up working from home the first month. And then in the second month, I eased back from part-time to full-time by the end of that second month. But it was the flexibility of working in an industry like tech that allowed me to work from home. I had 
a smaller company. It was my own company. I had a team that could pick up in a lot of places that I wasn't able to. Uh, they were supportive of it. They were supportive of me. I was able to do both spend time with my daughter Ivy after she was born, but then also work as if it was business as usual. Other challenges that I've come across is my family's not near. They are in Texas. My husband's side of the family is in Canada, in Toronto. So it's just us. We have to figure out and build our own support system for our children outside of us. We've had to for a nanny to help us. And my husband, being a startup entrepreneur himself, we have this constant battle of who gets to work more. <laughs> I don't recommend it. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, like even saying this is embarrassing or I'm ashamed of it. It sounds awful, but that's the truth that I'm not necessarily proud of. And for him too, it was time away from home. He, before COVID, was traveling more. And that was tough on me as a entrepreneur that works the 18-hour days, works after I put the kids to sleep, sometimes during dinner or you know, just attending to a phone call. Through all of that, I had to figure out a way that we could both do this and make it work. So we messed up a lot at the beginning, like I said, you know, having our phones at dinner and thinking everything needed an answer immediately. But we learned eventually what would create more harmony at home and sanity at work to create space and time for your family. Call each other out on it. I do more of the calling out to my husband than he would to me, but we are not afraid to let each other know that we need boundaries because work, if we're not careful, it bleeds too much into our family life. And that's where I want to make sure that I'm not sacrificing the things that should not and don't need to be sacrificed. I maintain their well-being as a priority at all times. So juggling that is key. And I need to ask for help. I need to ask for help from my husband. I need him to also be honest and communicate with me when he needs help or when there are certain things that I need to prepare for. Because in the past, he's had instances where he just leaves for a flight the next day. And that completely throws everything off for me at work and home. I've had to ask for help with our teachers at school. I had to figure out a way to ask and not be afraid to ask. Also, same in asking a nanny to come into our life and care for our children. The crazy thing with all of this is <laughs> that I'm here building this platform to help families save more for their children's goals. While at home, I was blowing through our savings to make all of this work. That was really vulnerable and honest. Thank you for sharing all of that. A couple things. I think 
after you have kids, you will have parental guilt forever. My husband is also an entrepreneur and we have very similar conversations. I remember when we were both working really hard on our separate things and he said, well, there has to be some hours on Saturday where me and the boys are not going to be near you so that you can get work done. And I kept saying like, no, but I, you know, I want you guys here. And he's like, but the thing is you're not getting any work done. Right. And so you have to sacrifice a little bit of that time. And I know that you don't want to, but in order for you to succeed in doing what you want to do, that has to happen. And it took me months to really understand what that meant to have five straight hours of uninterrupted time to be able to work Mm -hmm. on the things that I need to work on. The other thing too, now with everyone working from home, it's really hard to separate those two things. Oh yeah. I feel the same as you. There are some days where my husband's working on a ton of deals and it just happens to fall on the same week that I'm doing three recordings. It's an exhausting week. And we haven't even talked about the kids stuff on top of it, right? Yeah. There are times where they have night terrors and it always happens during the week that both parents are super busy. Or one is gone. (laughs) Yes. Or one is gone. The solo parenting is Mm -hmm. really brutal. It's brutal. Oh my gosh. It's so exhausting. And trying to juggle is a great word. You're just trying to juggle as much as you can. And it's not like this all of the time, right? Just most of the time. It's a (laughs) negotiation. I joke with my husband that... I think negotiation process every time you want to do something. I mean, we fight for office space in our house. (laughs) Yeah. And he usually wins the office space away from the main house. But there's a time when I say, hey, I need to be in the office. I need you to be with the kids. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of management or coordination that has to happen when you're working from home. And now with the kids live, particularly doing distance learning for kindergarten, you can't just disappear. You have to be around if she has a technical issue thing, you've got to be there for her to count on you. He did it once for me and had to admit to me how difficult it was. And he just, didn't even know how I was doing it daily because I am the lead parent in our relationship. When he admitted this to me, I couldn't help but also point out, yeah, and you weren't even really working when you were doing that. You just had your phone in and maybe had sent one or two emails, but Mm -hmm. you were just around. Imagine my day since March. (laughs) It's been crazy. Like with everything, we just roll with it. And we focus on the next, like what we've got to do to move forward instead of what has happened. The both of you have somewhat of a set schedule. By schedule, I mean, how do you prioritize time with your family and yourself and then both of your individual companies? How does that work in your house? We have this marriage counselor called Google Calendar. She really (laughs) keeps us in check. (laughs) I cannot imagine life without her because, oh my gosh, or maybe I call her the, I should call her the mediator. It's like we have this rule, put it in the calendar. And if there's a discrepancy or there's a fight for time, it's like, who put it in first? There's transparency in our schedules. 
which then lets the other person understand what they're working against. And it also helps each other up and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to lean in harder today to help you because I know you've got this big meeting or I know you've got a podcast you've got to record. I'll take the kids once the nanny leaves. So yeah, she's amazing. Google Calendar. (laughs) And it helps us plan ahead and how we can fit family life into it. Weekends are the kids. We plan on things to do or we don't have things to do. The idea is that we put our phones away. We're not in the office. We are all together. Granted, there are times where he has to take a call or I have to take a call. And we plan ahead and say, I know that this is something that I have to do. And I'm asking for permission from the family to step away. We agree on it. We acknowledge that the other person has to carry on a lot of the load. And we tell each other that we're thankful so that we don't build in too much resentment. But damn, it's hard. It's really hard. Our weekdays, though, he starts at 6 a.m. He's got to be up around 5.30 and into meetings by 6 a.m. because part of his company is in the UK. He works pretty much nonstop until lunchtime. Then he comes into the house now since we're all working from home. Whereas I take on more of the morning with the kids. I get them up, I get them ready, I feed them. The nanny comes around 8.30 and then I set live up. I've taught her how to sign on to Zoom for her classes. It just requires a lot of preparation. We're lucky that we get from her teacher the schedules the week before. I keep that open on my laptop so that I am constantly looking at it to make sure that she is doing what she needs to do. The context switching is on me right now in this situation with working from home and distance learning. The agreement is that we give Liv, our daughter, with distance learning at least each one hour of our time. The nanny helps out too. She helps with feeding the kids and their breaks. But that's pretty much like how our day goes. And then after 3.30, which is after Ivy's nap, the kids are back together. That's when Alan, my husband, that's when his day sort of ends. And he can take over more. And I'm given quiet time. I'm given that last stretch, though my stretch is very small. It's till five before I have to prepare dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I get that stretch to catch up on anything else and to work uninterrupted. That's important. At five, once I start cooking, unless it's a special exception, that dinner till bedtime is devoted to the kids and winding them down, listening about their day and eating a meal together, sharing a meal together. I've become a pro at also juggling that, juggling the daily schedule. Unfortunately, my husband has to be the one thing that gets moved around more or ignored. (laughs) That I'm also not proud of. And I have a lot 
of learning to do in how to manage our relationship through all of this. That's where Google has not been helpful. I mean, she's been helpful in scheduling our date nights, but with COVID and all that, we're kind of no different than every night. He also spends time after dinner to work. Once I put them down, I like to give myself time to unwind Mm -hmm. and step away. I used to not do this. I used to work until 12 a.m. I give that as self-care me time that I need. I need to unwind. I need to take a bath. I need to have a glass of wine. I need to not look at my computer screen. I need to catch up with a friend. Or what I do also is make sure that I get my reading in every night. Very similar situations in our house, Google Calendar. When you mentioned it, I didn't expect the answer. And then I started laughing because literally two days ago, my husband messaged me something and our normal response is something like, oh yeah, I can work it in or love you or something like that. And I responded, throw it on the calendar or it won't happen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So my husband and I have actually been together since high school. Um, oh my be, goodness. Yeah. So it'll be 18 years. I only know one other person All right. in my life that, that also is with their high school. Oh no, wait. She's with her middle school sweetheart. So they oh, wow. started in middle school. Yeah. And I would tell you that it still takes a lot of time and effort, but it does get a lot easier and you get I don't know if braver is the right term, but you get better at communicating with each other. So very similar to you and your husband, we work after the kids go to bed, but the time between dinner and bedtime is family time. We sit around the dinner table. We ask every person, including our two-year-old, what are you proud of today? And what would you want to improve on? And then we talk about our answers. Everything like that is very important to our family. And then afterward, when we're both working, we like to work in at least the same room. That helps a lot. Yeah, that's a new thing for my husband. I told him, I said, we've got to make some changes. Mm -hmm. And I'm tired of seeing you say goodbye every night. I, I get it. You have to work, but let's try to figure out a way to do it together. We're I could be sitting next to you reading while you're you're working because it, I think it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. And then we also have times where my husband likes to lie on the floor. I like to sit on the couch. And so when one of us moves in that direction, we have an understanding and we've told each other that if one of us moves in that direction, either the floor or the couch, that means that no laptops, no phones, it's time for us just mm-hmm. to chat and catch up. And so that's helped a lot because it's, a universal message in our house that it's time to spend that time with each other and talk. I like to talk when I'm in the shower. I don't know why. I don't care if we're going through the grocery list. Just be there and talking to each other is nice when the kids aren't around. And I may have an idea that I want to run by you while I'm showering. And it's just nice that you're there to engage with me. Yeah, it's important. So going through the motions as parents, as founders of your individual companies, you're building and growing little fun through the lens of a woman and also through the lens of a mother. What are your thoughts on how companies can help empower women and parents to succeed in the workplace? Is there anything specific that little fun does? I think it's important for every company to have flexibility 
to lead with empathy and to have childcare benefits. And I think that when you can provide those three things, it helps parents, it helps mothers who are working or fathers who are working, and it creates a more inclusive atmosphere to working parents. And that's something that Little Fun does. We allow for flexibility. We have empathy that every parent is trying to do their best. If there's anything that us as a company can do to help them do those things that they want to do for their families, then we're going to try it and we're going to listen and we're going to learn and we're going to execute on those things. Obviously, like resources in a startup are always less, but that's why I mentioned, you know, just even having the empathy there, it makes a difference for your teammates and employees. Childcare, it's a huge discussion topic these days because it is so vital to maintaining that work-life balance many of the working parents struggle with from costs to logistics to access, make that a priority when they think about benefits, then I truly believe that you will make a difference in your company for parents especially for women who are primarily the lead parent in the family. Again, there are exceptions, but I know that that's very common statistically. And also women suffer from mom guilt. And we also are the ones who physically are enduring changes that challenge us in so many ways at home and in the office that gets overlooked childcare benefits or health resources for a woman pre-birth to post-birth it's really important in creating an inclusive culture for families Yeah, I wanted to circle back actually to you had mentioned that you delayed fundraising when you were pregnant. And why did you do that? I delayed fundraising. It had nothing to do with me or my physical state being pregnant. It was purely on what was the right timing for our company for Little Fun. Mm -hmm. It had to do with metrics. It had to do with strategy. It had to do with resources. So that's why I had made the decision to delay it. And it ended up working out for the better. I had mentioned this a few times to people that my biological cycle or urgency to have my second was centered around fundraising cycles. (laughs) So our decision in having our second was very much inclusive of what my husband's fundraising cycle was looking like because 
those things you plan ahead mm-hmm. and what mine was going to look like. I mentioned before that fundraising is a full-time job. It's not only emotional, but it's physical. You are going from one meeting to the next and you're pitching, 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 and you're doing this for X weeks straight. That requires a lot of focus. And I'm not saying that you can't do it while you are pregnant, but because I wasn't pregnant, I had continued to delay my second pregnancy or my trying to conceive until I felt more comfortable with my fundraising cycle, like what it would look like. And I would sit there and note to myself, okay, if I start here, or if we conceive here, where would we be in the fundraising cycle between our two companies? I know that that's not very romantic of me to say, but it's the truth. We were trying to be practical with it. Most of the time, though, it doesn't happen the way you plan. The thought of it went through my mind and the discussion of our fundraising cycles was real. But when it came to having our second, there was the moment that we thought we were ready and we did try and it didn't happen. And it's a small window. Mm-hmm. Then the, that fundraising cycle or his fundraising cycle came and, oh, crap, let's pause on trying because mm-hmm. it's a very stressful moment. Yeah. So then we paused and then, okay, it's over. Let's try to pick back up. We found out that there's just no perfect time. We were just going to let it be after the first couple of times of trying within the different fundraising cycles to get pregnant and it not happening, whether or not it makes sense on the fundraising cycle, (laughs) because we're crazy to even be saying that at all. In the end, it worked out. So you just don't know. Thank you. That was, again, very vulnerable. You had mentioned it doesn't sound sexy or the planning part of it sounds weird, but I don't think that it is. I mean, we have far more information, far more choices to decide what we want to do with our bodies and how we want to plan our family. And isn't it the best for our families that we do it in that way, in a more strategic way? Whatever your situation is, it's better for you mentally and physically for the baby. It's better for your family long-term if you can handle all of these things, right? Yeah, you're you're right. I think that that ultimately was why we were planning. It was to reduce the additional anxiety and stress Mm -hmm. of the unknown. I being the more planner type A person thought that by planning our conception for the second baby, it would reduce a lot of that anxiety that I have and help me manage both the company running it, the hormones while being pregnant. Yeah. And and all the other physical things. Yeah, Yeah. And all the other physical and emotional things that happen to you and your mind and your body when you're pregnant. Like I wanted to feel like I could have some sense of control over it. And this is probably also the other lesson that I had learned for myself on running a company and juggling family life is 
I need more predictability. I need more control. That's what helps me. And that's what helps my anxiety in order for me to avoid feeling out of control, which happens a lot as a parent, because you just don't know what your baby or your child is going to do. And just when you think, you know, things change. I tried to find ways that I could prepare more between my husband and I, and I invested in learning different methods with sleep and blah, 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 just Mm -hmm. so that I could gain that predictability. Predictability for us is having a schedule. With my two kids, I did a sleep method that was super helpful. And it allowed me to have the comfort in going back to work. That sleep method was the baby whisper and I preach it. (laughs) So all of my friends who asked me, what's that one thing? I call it my sleep Bible called The Baby Whisper by Tracy Hogg with the goal being that in the book, they say like, no, you can definitely get your child to sleep through the night between eight and 12 weeks. I was willing to try it to get those results that I desperately wanted. And I was so lucky. It's a combination probably of just my luck in our kids, our girls, and my fanatical determination to get it to work. You know, I had the kids sleeping through from 7.30 at night till 7 a.m. With Liv, it took nine and a half weeks. With Ivy, it took eight weeks. It really helped me gain the sanity post-birth for our family and for me to continue running Little Fund as I did. I'm 100% on board. If I don't get sleep, I am a completely different person. My, oh, yeah. I pretty much melt. <laughs> yeah, really. Our second had colic for almost nine months. Ugh. It was brutal. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting me dig in and digging in yourself to share all of that. I really appreciate you being so open about it. On the Little Fun website, there's a spot about education and how to turn your child's Little Fund experience into memorable lessons, practice, and confidence. Again, I wish I had Little Fun growing up. I think it's really important that teaching kids about financial awareness and savings that you can invest your money and grow that investment is super important. If you're able to share this information, will Little Fund expand on the educational or investment component of your company from the perspective of the parents or the family and the child who will hopefully have their Little Fund account for the rest of their lives? Um, yes, I can share this. I guess question is a little bit of what's next for a little fun. And since we're pre-recording this and it won't be released until after, we will be introducing investments. So that's super exciting. And that's because we have been acquired. So I'm happy to announce that Little Fund is being acquired by UNEST. You Margie, actually, are the first to know. Please keep that confidential. I will absolutely do so. And that's why I had paused. 
<laughs> Looks like we just got we just got the final signature in and the lawyers can say that we are closed. We are so excited. It's going to be opening up a lot of new opportunities for our members, our little fund users. I will be continuing on in the integration with Unest. Unest is the first mobile app designed to help parents build, manage, and optimize a tax-free college fund. And with this acquisition, Unest and Little Fund will join forces to offer the best opportunities for everyone to invest in what matters most for your child's future. Our first-class tech gifting platform has enabled family and friends to easily and securely connect to your child's goals and dreams. And that was what was super exciting for UNEST was to be able to let everyone be involved in investing in your child's future. It's exciting news and, you know, we're able to take everything that we've built and throw it into this new chapter with UNEST. They are an incredible team, inspiring. Our missions are aligned. It's just all the best things that I could say. It's a really exciting moment. And I just think back. It's also a little bit bittersweet and like, ah, uh, it's not the end, but it sort of feels like all of that anticipation in like what's next. Now I know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's exciting and it's amazing, but it's also like, oh, it's here. Yeah. Um, that, that feeling that I was talking about too, is just this podcast is perfect timing. It's thinking back about those early days, those long nights, those moments where I had to pick myself up from the disappointment and push through. It's surviving through this pandemic. And somehow with the combination of luck and preparation and just the belief and conviction in what we've been doing with Little Fun, we were able to have this amazing outcome that that's made me very proud of what we've done. And it's made me proud for myself and it's made me proud for the entire team and all of our members that are part of Little Fun. So there's a lot of exciting stuff that's coming with this acquisition. And I urge anyone who is a Little Fund <laughs> user right now that's listening to stay tuned and that, you know, nothing changes with their account. Keep going, keep gifting, keep using Little Fund as is. You can also sign up if you want. In the coming weeks, we will be giving more information to that. So that's exciting. That's so exciting. Congratulations. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I am so excited for you and I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. It's going to be underwhelming because I normally wrap up these episodes with a rapid fire, but riding on high from this news. So congratulations. Thank you. Okay. Ready for the rapid fire? Okay. I'm ready. Okay. Are you a morning person or a night person? Morning. Which would be your ideal office view, a cityscape, the mountains, or the beach? The beach. 
What is the very first thing you do when you're alone? Breathe. How many breaths or just one long breath? One extremely long breath. <laughs> and it's, I'm probably on my back when I do it. What show have you binge watched and loved? So here's the thing. During COVID, I decided I wasn't going to do the Netflix thing. Mm. I've just been reading. And that's been my pleasure is reading book after book. <laughs> Great. Because the next question is a book that you have gifted the most or revisit often. Oh, well, I already told you guys that. The one book that I gift for new parents, The Baby Whisper. You know, right now I am going through all of the Oprah book recommendations from her book club. Mm -hmm. So I highly recommend those too. And I'm reading a lot of other books around race, inequality, and social justice. Yeah. All very important during this time and actually important before. So it's good to revisit those books. But you know, a Netflix series that pops up in my head that I just think is really fun is Grace and Frankie. Have you ever heard of that one? I have. I I think of it like the modern day Lucy and Ethel. I, I love it. It's one of my favorite. I think that it's beautifully written. I think the character's are really endearing and it's funny. It's inspiring. It's what I want to be like, not saying I want to be divorced or anything (laughs) if my husband's listening or not saying that my next startup is going to be in vibrators, but (laughs) I, I find it inspiring just, you know, having this second life Mm -hmm. after you've been through so much and again, persevering and being fun when you're at that age too. Can I recommend a show if you do have time? Okay. Okay. It's on Netflix. It's called Kim's Convenience. Oh my gosh. I watch it. You do? I don't binge it the way my husband does, um, but it is on our list. He's from Toronto, so he has to represent, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We watch that one too. I love it. It's funny. It's great. Kim's Convenience, first of all, mostly Asian yeah. cast. Representation matters. I'm so happy that the show exists. It has so many things that as an Asian person, from the towels they use to <laughs> all the details, like the doorknob, how Appa drinks out of that ceramic teacup. <laughs> is so part of our culture. It just makes me so happy that they're continuing to make it and that Simu Lu, the actor who plays Jung, it will be the Asian superhero. I'm so excited. Yeah, super exciting. Okay, sorry, we totally digress. Something you love doing with your family. Bike rides and walks. In the moments where you're feeling nervous or fearful, what are some things you do or say to yourself to calm down those nerves? You got this, you got this, and you got this. (laughs) What have other women said or done to empower you? They've asked me, how can I help? Last question. It's not a rapid fire. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listener out there that is building something for the mom or woman who is thinking about building something one day? To just start, whatever it is, just figure out a way to get going on it. Because I think a lot of times, when you think about creating a company, the vision feels very big. It can feel overwhelming. So my advice is to think small first, be excited about all the little things. To me, getting the wheels moving will eventually help you pick up steam. 
to get to that big destination. It is about the journey. That means you have to think about the start and the path along the way to that destination. I started Little Fun as a simple idea. I was met with a lot of challenges and non-believers, but I stuck through it. I wouldn't have gotten to here if I didn't do that one simple little thing when I had the idea, which was saying it to my husband or buying the domain. If you've got an idea and you're trying to figure it out and you want to get going, just just go. doesn't matter how big or small that first step is. Take a step. Mimi, thank you so much for being on the show and being so vulnerable and honest about your journey of being a founder, an entrepreneur, and a mom. The world needs to hear more stories like yours that show us that we can be mothers and we can build things and be wildly successful too. Congratulations on the acquisition. I'm so happy for you. I can't wait to see you and Little Fun continue to grow and thrive. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so happy that we were able to do this. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Links to things we discussed are in the show notes. You can follow Mimi Chan on Instagram and Twitter at Mimi Today. That's M-I-M-I Today. To learn more about Little Fund, visit littlefund.co. That's little, F-U-N-D dot C-O. Again, that's littlefund.co. And if you have a moment, I would love and really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review on iTunes. It helps us to get more amazing guests on the show and grow the podcast. You can find more interviews with inspirational moms building inspirational things on momswhobuild.com. Until next time, keep building what brings you joy.